So Mark 12. Now, the intent was to, to cover verse 28 all the way through 44, but I, I got halfway through this passage and I already had as many notes as I normally do for the whole sermon, so I cut it in half for your sake and for mine, so we're only going to go through verse 37 this week. So we're going to go Mark 12, 28 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, um, and, and you can find Mark there. So Mark 12, we're going to be in verse 28 through 37. So you can follow along. I'll read as we begin. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up to Jesus and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Verse 32, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Well, that's where we'll stop. If you look at at the passage, verses 28 through 37, I've broken it down into into two two simple uh, sections. So first, there's a question about the law. So there in verses 28 through 34, you see a question about the law. And then secondly, in verses 35 through 37, a question about the Christ. And so those are the two sections we're going to work through this morning. So let's begin looking there at verse 28. Verse 28. Now this, this interaction with the scribe, this marks the end of this specific section in Mark's gospel. If you remember, if you've been with us the past several weeks, Jesus has been engaged in a series of, of these, these questions, these antagonistic, ill-intentioned questions where people come to him trying to trap him. So they came to him earlier and said, by what authority do you do these things? The things immediately prior, Jesus had turned over the temple and and created chaos and havoc. They said, by what authority do you do these things? And then later, someone else would come and say, hey, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And then later, last week we saw, there was this question about, about marriage and the afterlife. Whose wife is that woman going to be when she married seven brothers? Okay, so this is the, the final series, uh, the, the final question in a series of questions. And in all the previous prior interactions, the Jewish leaders have been seeking to trap Jesus, to discredit him. They, they want to they get him caught up in his words so that they can arrest him. Okay, they, they, they have to eliminate him. And time after time after time, Jesus has shown himself superior to them. That, that's been one of the points. His, his wisdom and authority have been on clear 
display. And so here, when we read in verse 28 that a scribe is coming up to him and asking him a question, we might be tempted to think, well, we've seen this before. We know what the scribe's going to do. We know what his motivation is, which is why it's a bit surprising that that throughout verses 28 through 34 in this section, there's no mention of ulterior motives. Prior, Jesus and Mark have, have mentioned that their intention is to trap him. That's not here. Jesus responds to the question pretty straightforwardly. There doesn't seem to be any antagonism present in, in this scribe coming to him. So, so there seems to be a, a well-intentioned scribe. And so as he comes, we have to be careful um, at first to, to, to use any across-the-board statements regarding the scribes and Pharisees. So here's this Pharisee who's coming with an honest question. It's easy to, to paint with a broad brush when it comes to the Jewish leaders. And, and in this interaction, I think Mark is wanting to convey to us that, that that's not the case with every scribe and Pharisee. It's not, it's not this, this wholesale rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leadership. I mean, think about Nicodemus in John's gospel. He, he was part of that structure, that establishment. So here's a scribe that has a positive interaction with Jesus. So he comes up to him in verse 28, and, 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 and so he comes and he hears the, the discussion going on, the disputing going on. And he, he hears Jesus responding. We, we assume it's with the Sadducees. That was just last chapter. And, and this, this scribe likes what he hears. He likes what Jesus said. Now, now maybe he's, he's a Pharisee who, who affirms the resurrection. He says, oh, I, I agree with Jesus. I like that answer. Whatever the case, he hears Jesus interact and he thinks, I, I like that. I like, I like this man. Let me ask a question. I, I'm going to enter into this discussion. And so then at the end of verse 28, he asks, which commandment is the most important of all? That's his question. What, what's the most important? What's the greatest command? Now, this would have been a common discussion. So, so all the rabbis would have, would have discussed this. So this wouldn't have been an uncommon question. It's not contrived in an attempt to trick or to trap Jesus. It seems this, the scribe wants to know. Now, we should point out that, that at this time, as, as he's asking about the greatest commandment, there were, there were 613 recognized Jewish laws. Okay, so, so this religious group had 613 laws to keep. I mean, just think about that. That's a lot, right? That, that's a lot. We have trouble memorizing the Ten Commandments. So they have 613. And so at some point, there has to be some differentiation. Surely not all 613 are, are to be held with the same priority, with, with the same resolve. So, so his question is, of all these laws, what's the greatest? What's the most important? He's not asking, which one should I follow, which one should I not? Okay, that, that's, not that's not his thinking. His thinking is, what's the most, where should I focus? Give me a chapter to, to start with. What's, what's the greatest? Let me start from there. And so Jesus responds in verse 29, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and all your strength. And so the most important command, the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, who here is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, so in quoting from Deuteronomy 6, Jesus says the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the one command, the the one command under which all the other commandments are subordinate. The greatest, the most important, Jesus says, is to love God with all that you are. And so I just want to stop here. I think this is a point of application I want to stop and, and let this command fall on you. Right? The application for us immediately is you ought to love God. You ought to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You 
you who are hearing, who are listening to me, you ought to love the Lord your God with all that you are. That is the greatest command from God to man. Let that settle on you. Of, of everything that God has ever said, of everything God has ever commanded, this is the most important thing. You ought to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God commands every man, woman, boy, and girl, love him totally and completely. Right? You should feel that weight. Right? You are obligated to do that. Now, if you're following me, you'll notice I've done a bit of interpretation in, in conveying that command. I don't think that we ought to separate out all these particulars. You notice how he says, love the Lord you with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, I, don't, I don't think that, 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 that we should hear that and say, okay, let, let me follow this command in four different ways. Right? I don't think these are four different commands within the one. So I don't think we need to ask, well, how do I love him with my heart? Okay, got that. How do I love him with my soul? How, that, that's not the point. The point is simply to make one clear point. Namely, you ought to love God with all that you are. With your whole person, totally, completely, absolutely, you ought to love him with all that you are. So Jesus says, this is the greatest command. But notice how Jesus begins his answer there in verse 29. Look down at verse 29. He's, he's asked about the most important command. He doesn't say the greatest command is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not how he begins, right? Does your Bible say what my Bible says? Right? Verse 29, he begins by saying, the most important command is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then, verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you see? Do you see how he begins? He doesn't go right into the command. He begins with a preface. In fact, he begins the, the, the exact way that the Deuteronomy 6 quote begins. And we can't miss that. So our question becomes, why does Jesus begin that way? Why not just go straight into the command? That's all he wants to know, so tell us the command. But he doesn't. Why preface it? Well, the reason that Jesus begins the way he does is because every command has a context. Every command has a context. In fact, I would say there's no such thing as a contextless command. Right? Every command has a context. Think about the simplest command. Stop. Right? That's going to depend on, a, that has a context. Whether it's a child fighting with a sibling or someone running across the street, or someone kicking the back of your chair, right? Context helps you interpret the command. Do you see? Every command has a context. So Jesus gives this greatest command in a context. And so the command to love God, it's an obligation which stems from the uniqueness of God himself. Right? So it's, it's the nature of God, the uniqueness of God, that, that is the context of this command. In other words, the God to whom this complete love and allegiance is due is not some abstract idea. This God whom we are commanded to love is a specific God, a unique God, the one true God, the living and sovereign God. The God that we're called to love is, is, is unique. He is alone, unlike any other God. That gives some of the context. Right? And that bit of context alone, that's enough to warrant obedience. Right? He is the one true God. You ought to obey him. That's enough to warrant your obedience. But there's more context than simply that. I mean, think about Deuteronomy 6. That's, that's where this, this, this quote is coming from. That's what Jesus is referring to. So think about Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, you have, you have Moses giving commands. And so when that command is given in Deuteronomy 6... 
Does that command fall on the ears of a people who are totally oblivious to the one God that they are being commanded to love? When that command is given, do the Israelites look around at one another and say, well, well who is this God? Who, who, are, who are we talking about? Do they say, hey, tell me about him. I, I don't know anything. Tell me about him. What, what's he like? That's not the response of the Israelites. Rather, they know exactly who this God that they're supposed to love is. They have a context. They know him. Right? He's the God of Israel. Did you catch the implication in the command itself? Love the Lord, your God. Right? This is a possessive. In, in one sense, this is the God that they possess. That implies that there's a context. There, there's, there's a past. This is the God that chose them, that entered into to a covenant, committed relationship with them, the God who delivered them from Egypt. And Pharaoh, the one who, who promised them a land, the one who made Abraham a great nation, the one who fed them in the wilderness, the one who had committed to be their God, and the one who had commanded, who had committed to make them his people. So it's not some abstract, unattached God who's giving this command. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's a covenantal context to this command. Love the Lord your God. Which God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's the God. There's a covenantal context. And in fact, write down Exodus 20, because there's this exact same thing that happens prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So just jot down Exodus 20, because the Ten Commandments don't begin with number one. Instead, Exodus 20 begins, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see there's a preface there? There's a context to the Ten Commandments. The reason that this is so important is because the command to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength was preceded by that God revealing himself and making himself known. That's the context. There's a track record. God's not calling the Israelites to do something that's like playing the lottery. Take your chance on me. I just showed up at your door. Give me all your money. Give me all your love. That's not the case. They know him. There's a track record. They're not taking a chance by committing wholeheartedly to this God. This is their God, the one who called them, sustained them, delivered them. And this point, the point that every command has a context, it, it transforms the way the Israelites hear the commands, doesn't it? It changes the way they hear these commands. But more than that, it also transforms the way that you and I hear this command today. This obligation that, that falls on us. So, so hopefully you felt it. You ought to love God with all that you are. That, that's the command, but, but there's a context to that. So you should hear it differently. It's not a legalistic weight that, that, should, that should weigh down on you, that, that's purpose to, to somehow give you a, a course syllabus on how to make the grade, on how to qualify for a relationship with God. That's not the purpose. You don't keep this command and say, okay, I did it, God, now accept me. Right? There's a context the command isn't coming from an absentee landlord who has no care or concern for you or for me. Rather, this God who makes this command has revealed himself. And we have an even clearer picture than the Israelites had. God sent his own son. God sent his own son. The very man that's speaking in our passage is God himself in the flesh. He was born and he was crucified and then he was raised three days later from the grave. And by doing so, he secured salvation for all those, all those, every single one who would turn from their sins and trust in him. That's the context here. 
In most basic terms, God has put his love on display. He's put it on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has loved you with an everlasting love. Hear that. That that should change the way you hear the command. I've got to love him? Who is he? He's the God who gave his own son for you. So much so the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 could say, I'm convinced, I'm sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will do what? Will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. It transforms how you and I hear the command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And so in light of all that, you tell me, where else could we go? Who else could we love? Who is like our God? Who else is worthy of your wholehearted love and allegiance? Who else deserves it save our God who has shown his love for us in Christ? There's no one, there's no thing that is more deserving of your love than this God, this God of Israel who has sent his son, this son who would give his life as a ransom for many, the the lamb who who would take away the sins of the world. And so in light of this, in light of who he is and in light of what he's done, the call The obligation for us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it takes on a bit of a different tone. It's this command, it must always be understood in light of the God revealing himself and making himself known. It's like the Apostle John would write, we love because he first loved. Our call to love has to be carried out in light of the context. And so if you're here, if you're non-Christian, if you're here not trusting Christ, I would ask you, do you know the love of God this morning? Before you even think about loving God, you have to know that God loves you. Not that he's given you lots of money and and cars and health and family. That's not how you know that God loves you. There are lots of people who know the love of God who have none of that, who are fleeing for their lives right now in the Middle East. So so our, our earthly possessions are not a sign of God's love for us. Rather, the bloody cross and the empty grave, that's the sign of God's love for you. And so if you're here, you're not a Christian. Do you know God's love for you this morning? Don't walk out of here thinking, i got to love God, i got to do it. No. You have to know the love of God for you that's been shown in Jesus Christ. You have to leave here having repented and believed in Christ that God has sent his son to make you reconciled to him, to reconcile you. And so if you're not a Christian, that's my call to you. Repent and believe. I'd love to talk with you afterwards about how to do that. You'll find his arms open wide. God loves you so much so that he sent his son for you. But if you're here and you're a Christian, how is your love for God? Is your love for God cold this morning? Maybe this week, this month, this year, this decade? Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you've grown cold. Are you dull towards him? I would simply encourage you, you've forgotten. You've forgotten the great love with which he's loved you. You've forgotten you need to be reminded. Meditate on the love of God that's been shown to you in the gospel of his son. Let that warm your heart. If the gospel truth doesn't warm your heart, then you're missing something. And so if your love's cold, you don't say, well, I've got I to do better. You say, let me, let me remember what God's done for me. And what better time than now? Right? Christmas season, everyone's talking about Jesus. 
What a good time to remember anew the miracle of our coming Savior, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our, our Emmanuel. He was born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. There's a glory of Christmas that far exceeds anything material that we could give or get. So let us endeavor to love the God who has first loved us. Well, let's get back to the passage Turning back to, to the passage of Mark, notice that Jesus doesn't end here with verse 30. Right? So he's asked about what's the most important commandment, and he gives one. Here's the greatest one, love the Lord your God. But he continues in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. It says if Jesus cannot mention one without the other. So he clearly d- distinguishes the first is this, love God. That's the most important. That's the first. But without taking a breath, he connects the second to love others with the first, to love God. And he does so, I think, because the truth is you can't love God fully without also loving others. In other words, you don't fulfill number one without fulfilling number two. Right? They are connected. You can't separate them. A commitment to God finds expression in a similar commitment to men. You see, you can't love God and not love others. If you love God, you're going to love Others, that's how a love for God finds its expression. The one who says he loves God while hating his brother is a liar. He or she's deceived. As one commentator notes, that those who truly love God will also love those who are created in God's image, which is everyone. So two commands are inseparable. They belong together. And it's as if Jesus combines these two commands into one. In fact, did you ever realize that the Ten Commandments are broken down in these exact same categories? And so there's two tables of the law, it's often described. So commands one, two, one through four, okay, I won't ask you to recite them, but commands one through four, no other God before me, no idols, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, and keep the Lord's day holy. The first four, those are all vertical, you and the Lord. Right? That's, that's how you love God, first four. But then the, the second six, okay, five through ten, are all about horizontal relationships, loving others. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. And so every command is wrapped up in these two, love for God and love for others. And this is, this is on, on display throughout the New Testament with, with the, the New Testament letters, saying that the law is fulfilled in, in this one command, to, to love others. And so New Testament and Jesus clearly tie your love for God to your love for others. You can say you love God all you want, but when your relationship with others is not a reflection of that, you don't really love God. Do you hear that? You can say all you want about loving God. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in your relationship with others. It's like the politician who claims to value family and claims to value marriage, but whose personal life is revealed to be filled with infidelity and corruption and greed. Right? Those two don't go together. What he says and what the reality is, they don't match. Something's off. Same is true for the one who says they love God. If their life is not characterized by a love for others, something's off. For us, this comes down pretty, pretty simply. We can apply this in a whole host of ways. Right? You ought to love others. You ought to love others, and, and others includes others. Right? Everyone that's not yourself. Others. The original context in, in Leviticus, what Jesus is quoting here, would have been the fellow Israelites and, 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 and relatives. But Jesus transforms that and says, no, no, no. 
Remember the question? Who's my neighbor? They want a line, a defined line. He says, no, no, no. Anyone in need is your neighbor. There's no boundary. It's, It's others, even your enemies, Jesus would say. And so we're called to love others. So I'd simply say, how are we doing? How are you doing? Others includes spouses, husbands. How are you loving your wife? Others includes children, parents. How are you doing loving your kids? Maybe you need to be reminded as I do, love is patient, love is kind. Others includes coworkers. How are you doing loving those who you share a space with in your cubicle? Others includes your neighbors, even those whose trees are dropping leaves all over your yard right now. Right? They are included. It includes fellow Americans, those who you disagree with politically. You can say that you love them. Yeah, I love them all. What does your heart say? What do you think about those who disagree with you? Others include those different from you, racially different, economically different. Others includes others. And we're called to love others. And so it simply behooves us to ask, how are we doing Are you a loving person? Am I a loving person? Will those who know you, who actually know you, will they define you as loving? This passage tells us that that our purpose, our our created purpose, the sole reason, I'd say, for our existence is to love. We exist to love God and by extension to love others. And we ought not be afraid as individuals, as a church, to take an honest look in the mirror and ask ourselves, how are we doing? And don't be afraid of what we see. There's always going to be imperfection. So when we see where we're failing to love others, we ought to repent. We want to claim our failures boldly and, and turn from them. Well, getting back to our text, notice in verse 32, notice how, how this scribe responds. It's rather surprising, verse 22, the scribe says to him, verse 32, sorry, the scribe says to him, you're right, teacher, You're right, you have truly said that he is one and there's no other beside him. And and you've also said that to love him with all heart and with all understanding, with all strength, and to love neighbors as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so first note that he agrees with Jesus. Right? This teaching of Jesus isn't plain out rejected by all that hear it, all these religious leaders. This man hears it and says, yeah, you're right. You're right, he agrees with it. And then notice the, the application that he makes. He says, yeah, you're right. What you said is right. To love God and love neighbor is much more, the scribe says, than all the whole burnt offering and sacrifices. And that's shocking from a scribe. He's saying, yeah, you're right. To do this is way better than to perform all these rituals in the temple. That's, that's a remarkable response, especially as, as this conversation is taking place in the shadow of the temple. And we'll see next chapter what Jesus says about the temple and, and, it's, and also in light of what Jesus says about the scribes in a, few verse, in a few verses. But this scribe here, he gets the law. He gets its intention. He recognizes the purpose of the law. He sees past the, the, the veneer of religious rites that are merely external. I mean, he recognizes, I, I can keep all these sacrifices. I can do all these duties and still fail to keep the law. I mean, that's important to r- understand. It's not about all that I do. It's about, it's about how I love. It's about my heart. And so that's why in, in verse 34, upon seeing that this man answers wisely, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. He doesn't send him away. He says, you're not far. You're on the right track. You're close. You get this. 
We should also notice that Jesus assumes authority in his declaration. Remember the, the scribe tells him, yeah, you're right, Jesus. Here, Jesus assumes authority to declare who's in and who isn't. So he can say, you're, you're close. You're close. He has authority. And after that exchange, Mark notes that no one else dared ask him any questions, which, which marks the end of, of this public teaching, that this, this question, answering and asking. Which leads to our second point, which, which is fast. I'm not going fast because I'm out of time. I'm going fast because I plan to go fast to the second point. All right, so second point, verses 35 through 37, a question about the Christ. So, so they're done asking questions. Jesus now takes a turn, and he asks a question of his own. Okay, so, so he asks a question, verses 35 through 37. He taught in the temple, verse 35, and he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? I mean, David himself, this is Jesus still speaking, David himself in the Holy Spirit said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he the son? So there's a lot of, a lot of pronouns there, right? So we're not, we're not going to go much into, into too much detail because the point is clear. And here's the point. Jesus asked this question to show the insufficient view that the Jewish leaders had regarding the Messiah, Okay, so they, they, had a, they had an insufficient and incomplete view. They were thinking in terms, only in terms, of the human line of David. So religious leaders, they believed that, that the Messiah was going to be the son of David, right, which is true as far as it goes. But he was more than that. That's what Jesus wants to, wants to draw out here. Jesus' point, now he, he quotes from Psalm 110, and his point is to show not only that the Messiah was the son of David, but also the Messiah was David's Lord. That's the, that's the category they're missing. They got David's son part, but they, they don't have David's Lord part. So in writing Psalm 110, so now we're going back to what Jesus is quoting. David is the author of Psalm 110, and David says, the Lord, that is the God of Israel, said to my Lord, so David's saying, the Lord, the God, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. So David is talking about the Lord God and the Messiah. And they're both referred to Lord. So there's this interchange between two lords, right? And so, so Jesus uses that, and he says, David himself calls the Messiah Lord. So David said he's my Lord. So how can he only be David's son? Right? That doesn't typically work. Sons don't call fathers. I mean, fathers don't call sons Lord. It's the other way around. And so Jesus, simply asking this question to, pro- to provoke them, how does the Davidic sonship of the Messiah relate to his transcendent majesty? He's Lord also. Don't, don't focus only on he's the son of David. He is the Lord also. He's attempting to show them their insufficient view of the Messiah. They, have, they haven't rightly understood the entirety of the Old Testament witness concerning the Messiah, which means when he's standing right in front of them, they don't, they don't get it. They miss it. He is on the scene claiming to be Messiah, which means he's much more than simply the son of David. He is the Lord himself, which means, among other things, many other things, that that he's the lawgiver. He knows what the most important law is because he's the source of it. He's the only one who can rightly interpret and explain the law, which means he's not on the same level as these scribes walking around the temple talking. He's not just another rabbi teaching about God. Rather, he is God in flesh teaching about himself. Which just goes to highlight the foolishness of all those religious leaders who are attempting to trap Jesus. Right? Good luck with that. You can't trick him. You can't outsmart him. And that's Jesus' point. He ought to be heard in light of his identity, the Lord himself. Jesus has come as the promised Messiah, the son of David, 
the Lord himself, which ought to change the way the Pharisees and the scribes heard him, but also ought to change the way that we hear him. He is the Lord who's come and revealed the Father to us. So we, we, ought, to, we ought to listen to him differently. We ought to think about him differently. We ought to worship him differently. David's Lord was the eternal Son of God. David's Lord became his son when he was conceived in the womb of Mary, was born in Bethlehem, the, the city of David. So that, that, that's the tension. That's the paradox. The eternal Son of God and the Son of David in one person, fully God and fully man, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Do you see the tension? Incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Let's, let's pray.